Good morning. Um, I want to uh, introduce our family to you, our son and daughter Jenny and our kids up here on the front row. Um, uh, JD's going to be speaking for us this morning, and uh, I want you to know he's the reason that we travel. <laughs> um, he and Jenny have been all over the world, and uh, so they take the grandkids with them, obviously, so we have to go. Um, but uh, uh, I'm sure you're, uh, we're going to be blessed by what JD has to say this morning, and I'll stop talking now and let him make the intro. <laughs> He said we're the reason he travels. It's really the grandkids. <laughs> I'm not. Well, my dad did visit me when I was a single guy living in Africa, but uh, it took the grandkids for mom to get on the plane. <laughs> I, w- I would like you guys to do something for me this morning. I know I, t- I looked around this morning. There's pencils in those little trays, and there's actually some paper in there. And if you would do something for me, if you would get something to write with and something to write on, it doesn't, you don't need a lot of space, just a little bit of space. I'm going to ask you to write down two things this morning, um, one of them right now. And so if you'd go ahead and get that out. It's not any kind of colossal homework or anything like that. I just want you to put it down on paper so you can't change your answer later. All right? So here's what I'd like you to do. If you've got paper and something to write with, and you can share a pencil with your neighbor or whatever, uh, what I'd like you to do right now is think about, think about God thinking about you. And I would like you to just write down one or two words about what He thinks what you think he thinks when he thinks about you. Okay? Just first one or two words that come to your mind. Really, don't, oh, don't overthink this. What's your gut reaction? God's thinking about me right now, and he's thinking one or two words. Just one or two words right there. And if you happen to write down something that was different than your gut reaction, I want you to remember that gut reaction too, okay? Okay? Because I know some of you probably had a gut reaction and then were like, wait, but in Sunday school I learned that. Um, so we're going to come back to that later. You can just set it aside for right now or doodle if you like. I'm a doodler, so you, you'll get grace for doodling this morning. Um, this is kind of a teaser of where we're going this morning. We're going to be... Uh, in the story of the prodigal son, but we're actually going to be looking at the older son part of that in the main message this morning. But for this part right here, I just wanted to recap the story of the prodigal son and the, and the prodigal part of that story. So um, most of you guys are familiar with this story. It's one that we tell all the time and for good reason. It's a beautiful story. Uh, so there's a father and he has two sons. And the younger son comes to dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead, because then I could have your stuff. Can I just have it now, so I can go and enjoy it while I'm young? And a kind of a remarkable thing. He didn't actually say, I wish you were dead, but that's pretty much what it comes down to when you go to mom and dad and say, can I have my inheritance? 
I've just been waiting around and you're and you're you keep stretching this out. So he says, Can I can I have can I have my share right now? And to my amazement, as I first heard this story as a kid, to my amazement, the father says, Okay. That's kind of a surprise, right? Like that that's not my first reaction. As a parent, I've got kids. I'm like, Dad can Nope. <laughs> Um, that's my first reaction. For some reason, the father in this case says, sure, no problem. And he liquidates some assets, moves some things around somehow, gives the son his share of the inheritance. The son takes his father's possessions, says, I've got it made now. And he takes off, goes to a foreign land, probably, as Jesus is telling this story in Israel, He recognized that Israel was not the most fun place in the world because people actually, some of them, sort of listened to God's law. And so he was like, I'm going to go way away from what God's law. I'm going to go to one of those fun, crazy places. And so he goes to one of those fun, crazy places. And we find him next, having spent everything that he had. The land ends up in a famine. There's no food. He has nothing. And he's standing in a pig pen, feeding pigs. And you know what you feed pigs, right? My wife's family had pig raising in the family and the trailer that they drove down to the, around all the restaurants and they just heaped all the nasty stuff in the back of it. And they actually had to let it cool down because it was rotting so much that you had to let it like cool down or it burned the pigs because they wouldn't wait. They'd just eat it when... It's not a pretty scene. And the younger son is there standing with the pigs and he thinks, my father's house, the servants, have a better life than this. At least they have food to eat. And so the younger son says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to beg his forgiveness and just ask to be a servant in his house. And so the younger son returns home And to everyone's great surprise, who is looking out? The father. He's looking out for his son. And it says, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. It wasn't like at the front porch knocking. It was like, I saw you walking down the road. I saw you come over the horizon. And the father gets up and he runs, which is totally disgraceful for an older person in that era. And he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him. Remember what this son has been doing? Remember what this son has just done? He's walked all this distance. He was not a pretty picture when he showed up. But the father throws his arms around him. He calls his servants. He says, put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf because we must celebrate this son of mine is returned. That's the kind of father that we have in God. And it's really good news. A little bit later, actually I'm just going to ask you right now, have you ever known anybody like the prodigal son? Have you maybe been that person? Have you known somebody like that? Have you known somebody like that who comes back? What's that person like when they come back to the Father and they find that they're loved? Isn't it beautiful to meet somebody who knows how much the Father loves them? It's really sweet. Uh, 
What I want to propose to you this morning, what we'll get into a little bit later, is that the good news is really, really good news. Even for older brothers. That's where we're going to come back a little later. Thank you. We just want to thank you as a church uh, for the welcome that you have given to us this weekend. Um, It's not a lot of churches that welcome people like us to preach or speak anymore. And to um, offer your space to host a luncheon and things like that, that really is um, above and beyond, and we thank you for that opportunity. Uh, We would love to see you afterwards to tell you more about what we do, where we've come from, and where we're going and what we're going to do there, and uh, be able to answer some questions that uh, in formats like this, um, usually we don't do as much because of where we're going. So we'd love to see you after if you're available. So we talked a little bit about the lost son, the prodigal son, and how he went away. And when he came back, his father ran to him with open arms, welcomed him, and threw a big party. And I closed with this phrase that the good news is good news. And I want to just put a little ending on that. The good news is good news even for older brothers. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. So uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles or it will be up on the screen uh, from Luke chapter 15. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 32. We're just going to read through them. And it goes like this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Have you ever known anyone like the older son? Have you ever been like the older son? But if you're thinking of somebody like the older... I mean, has anybody had kids in the room? Any of you guys had kids? Ever seen anything sort of like this in your children? See it every once in a while. Um, It's easy to pick on the older son... Uh, but I would like to, to look a little closer and let's see what's going on here. So uh, what I'd like you to do right now is I'm going to ask you to do something that you don't normally do in church probably, which is talk. So what I want you to do is just turn to a neighbor or somebody in the row behind you or in front of you or next to you, and I want you to finish this sentence. The older son is really... and fill it in, okay? So just... Gut reaction, the older son is really or is being really to the person next to you. Take just a second and do that.
All right, all right. While you're there, we're going to do one more. And I want you to finish this one. The Father is really... Fill that one in with your neighbor again. All right. So we've got this older brother, this older brother, and his attitude, his behavior is selfish, whiny, bitter, hurt. Yeah, um, I, I think it's really interesting that he actually hears, your brother has come, nothing. Yeah. I don't care. He killed the fattened calf, but Dad, you never... First off, when never statements with people, are those usually good ideas? Because they're usually not true. You never say anything nice. Probably not true. Sometimes, often, maybe true, but never. He says, you never, even a Go to celebrate with my friends. What is the father doing while the elder son is complaining? Pleading with him. Pleading with him to do what? Come to the party. I bet the father would say, call your friends. We're having a party. But what is the son's posture? You never. Right then he's wrong. He's like, I've got the fattened calf for you, for our community. Call everybody together. We're going to eat. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat a whole cow. It's a lot of meat. (laughs) There's room for everybody. Jesus uses this analogy a lot of times, by the way, guys, about the feast. And he's like, call everybody, like... Invite these people, invite these people. They're like, no, we're busy, we're doing this. No, I just bought this. People don't want to come. He's like, fine, go out on the corners and just grab anybody and bring them to the... There's room at the feast. And their older brother is like, you never. Hmm. So that's one thing that's going on. What's the father doing? We talked about this. The father is pleading. He's beckoning. I think it's really interesting that the father is actually doing the same thing with the older son that he did with the younger son. He saw the younger son far off, ran to meet him, threw his arms around him, said, hey, we're having a party, come. And with the older son, he hears that he's not come in, he sees him out in the field, does he wait? Stand there at the back door, oh, when he gets here? No. He goes out to him and he pleads to him. His arms are wide open, saying, come, feast with us. We're going to have a party. But the son won't have it. Isn't that just like us? To misunderstand our father. What kind of father do we have? Very often we think like, oh, he's up there and he's scolding and he's, you know, he's got his, he has his arms crossed like I just did, like he's waiting at the doorway of heaven to let us know how we really did. That's not the father that we see depicted in this story. We see a father who looks to the prodigal who has ruined his entire life. 
And he's really hurt the father. And he's looking for him, longing for him to come. And he runs to meet him with arms wide open. And he looks to the older brother. And he goes out and he pleads with him, come to the party, please come to the party. I love you. Everything I have is yours. But the older son is like this. You know, what's interesting is that both of the sons, what they misunderstood was their identity. Both of the sons misunderstood their identity because the younger son forgot the nature of the father and who he is in his eyes. He totally forgot. My dad will never let me be a servant in his house because I'm his son. I belong to him. He's going to welcome me back with open arms. To misunderstand that means, like for him to come back the way that he did means he misunderstood his father's heart and he misunderstood who he was. The elder son out in the field, what's going on with him? The exact same thing. He is attributing all kinds of horrible things to his dad. You don't love me. You only love people like that. You only love this. You only. Love, you don't love me. You never do anything good for me. And the father's like, I'm right now inviting you to the party. I just want you to come. And the older son has forgotten that everything the father has is his. He's forgotten. Interesting. So we're going to take a little bit of a meandering through a couple of other passages here to kind of see how this plays out and might affect and impact us as we relate to our Father in Heaven. That's clearly what Jesus is pointing to here as he tells this story. Um, this next bit I want to title, The Good News is Really Good News, even for older brothers. If we think about people in the Bible uh, and we think about somebody that we could aspire to be like, I'm just going to tell you, just wipe out the whole Old Testament already, right? Because most of those guys are kind of messed up. Um, we're going to think in the New Testament, somebody that we could say, okay, I can't be like Jesus, but I might, if I was really, really, really devoted to the Lord, I might possibly, but probably not. But if I was to aspire to be like somebody, I would aspire to be like, fill it in the blank. Who would you, who would you name from the Old Testament, somebody you think of? Uh, sorry, New Testament. Sorry, from the New Testament. From the from the New Testament, maybe John. Okay. Maybe James. Keep going. Barnabas. Paul. Mary, Martha's sister. Okay. So those, these are all great answers. And uh, to honestly, to aspire to be like any of those people is pretty amazing because um, they were pretty wonderful people. Uh, I want to pick on Paul this morning. So. Uh, with the kind of work that we do, traveling to different countries and trying to tell people about Jesus, we kind of look up to Paul because he did a lot of that. And he did it in really different circumstances in different ways. But we kind of feel like I could, I could look up and aspire to be like Paul. Really interesting. I want us to ask the question, what about Paul? How did Paul see himself? And so as we look at that, we're going to actually look in the book of Romans in chapter 7 the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to catch Paul in one of his crazy moments. One of the nice things with Paul is that he wrote a lot. So there's a lot of the New Testament that was written by him. So we have lots of opportunities to figure out, figure out what was going on in this guy's head. 
Paul wrote a lot of things in a lot of different ways. And there's a couple of times in Scripture where it kind of seems like Paul just about lost his mind. Um, sometimes he's, he's writing and it's like, I, I, I'm writing and this is well thought through and I have spent time thinking about how I'm going to phrase this. And every once in a while, the Spirit in Paul just kind of bubbles up and it just seems like he just almost is doing this like emotional vomiting onto the page. And he even a couple of times says, like, I'm crazy to talk like this, but you need to hear it. And the Spirit is leading me to say this. This is kind of one of those moments. And so we're here in uh, Romans 7, verse 14. And we're going to read down through 25. I'm going to kind of read through, we'll pause uh, just a couple of times here. So we know that the law is spiritual. He's talking about the law and sin. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Have you ever felt like that? This is the Apostle Paul writing, friends. This is not you and me writing. This is the Apostle Paul who took the gospel to the nations. And he's writing like this. I don't understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, for, but what I hate, I do. Um, a, a friend and mentor recent, recently pointed out, there's two eyes as Paul is talking through this verse. And we'll see them as we go along, that there's two eyes at play here. So when you see the word I in this passage, there's actually two of them. And if I do, going on, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now he's pointing, there's two things going on inside of me. There's I, child of God, and there's I, sin living in me. My flesh, my sinful nature is how he describes it in other places. So, in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, in me, that is, in my sinful nature, there's that other I, for I child of God, have the desire to do what is good, but I, sinful nature, flesh, cannot carry it out. This is Paul. Really interesting. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What word does Paul use here? Evil. He didn't use any nice Christianese for the sin living in his own heart. He didn't say, sometimes I stumble. I kind of fell into something the other day. He doesn't use any of that stuff that we actually quite frequently in the church use to talk about, well, I had kind of a bad week. No, Paul just comes right out and calls it what it is. He says, evil. The evil I, child of God, do not want to do. That evil I keep on doing. Paul is saying this. I don't know if this seems like kind of revolutionary to you, but I've never really looked at this and thought, wow, Paul is calling his life evil. Not all of it, but parts of it. Evil. That's strong language, Paul. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I, child of God, delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's Paul. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's strong language. This is Paul talking. Wretched man. Biblical hero. But how does he talk about himself? Wretched man that I am, through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm saved. Who will save me from this body of death? Jesus. Thank Jesus that he'll save me from this body of death. Where does the confidence come from for Paul to talk like this? To tell this kind of truth? I want to propose to you that Paul's able to talk like this because he knows full well the nature of his father and his own identity, who he really is. I don't think that most of us can talk like this very well because I'm a little bit nervous that if I talk about the full depth of the wickedness in my own heart, God's not going to like that very much. He doesn't love that. How could He love me if I have that welling up within me? Well, I forget who He is and I forget who I am. I'm like the prodigal son or the older son standing out in the field saying like, you're not a loving God. You've never even slaughtered a goat for me. Slaughtered a what? Goat? How about a son? me. He loves me so much. Paul takes his courage from his identity. We have a new identity. Our new identity is that we're sons and daughters of Christ. And because of that, because of faith in who God is and because of even what we see in Scripture and the model of Paul, we can have the courage to actually even talk like Paul. And I kind of wonder what would the world think of us if we talked like this? Uh, if, you, if you were to think about how the world sees us in the church as followers of Christ, and fill in the blank. Okay, this is the world thinking about us. Oh, the church, Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites, right? doesn't take very long. You could have that conversation at the hardware store, the grocery store, at your place of work, right? You guys are just a bunch of hypocrites, really fascinating that the only religion in the world where pride is a sin is Christianity. It's the, only, it's the only religion in the world where pride is a sin. Every religion has sin. Christianity puts pride as a sin. Quite interesting. We can't be... As soon as we start acting like we're good in our own selves... We've sinned and proven ourselves wrong. It's marvelously freeing, isn't it? And what if, and what if, this was the way that we communicated with the people around us. Uh, just a quick story is Jenny and I have some friends in Southern California. We've known the wife um, forever since elementary school. Uh, my wife has known the wife of this couple. And we met the husband as they got into a relationship and are now married. 
and they're believers and they're Christians. And we were talking with the wife recently about some struggles that we're having in our marriage, Jenny and I, and some things that we're wanting to work on. And we're working on our marriage because there's evil in it. And there's not just evil happens to be in our marriage. I do evil in our marriage. And it hurts us. And we're talking about the fact that we're seeing a counselor and we're working on it because we want to get that evil out. And we need the Lord's help to do that. And do you know what our friend said? This is a Christian even. Our friend said, my friends who have it all together are struggling in their marriage and she got this smile on her face. Why is she smiling? She's smiling because she's not alone. She's smiling because she doesn't have to keep up pretenses with us as if somehow she's a perfect person. She feels free that we're brothers and sisters in common. We're brothers and sisters that have two eyes. The child of God, I, that wants to do what is good and right and loves the Lord and loves His Word and the sinful nature flesh, I, that is still there and does evil even though I don't want to do it. There's an impact that is had on others when we're able to talk this way with this freedom that Paul brings. It totally dispels, by the way, the hypocrite accusation. Like, you might actually encounter a non-Christian who says, I think you might be worse than me. (laughs) By the way, who talks like that? Paul. I, though I am the chief of all righteous people. No. Chief of all sinners. Why does Paul describe himself as the chief of all sinners? Because he knows the nature of the Father. He knows the nature of who he is and yet he still finds himself doing evil. Those people out there who are wandering around doing evil things, they don't know any better. Why would they change? Why would they do something else? There's there's this thing that happens in us as believers that we recognize that, we know we shouldn't do it and we still do it. That's really wicked. And we have the freedom because of the nature of God to say, wow, wow, I can talk about that. And it has an impact on others. It has an impact on me. When I get to talk to our friends and say, this is the struggles that we really have in our lives and tell the truth about it. This is the struggle that I have in, the struggles that I have in my life. It's so freeing. I get to find out if people like me or they like the poster of me. And guess what I've found? People love me. And it changes me. To know that I'm loved in spite of the fact that I still do this evil that Paul talks about. Uh, One more thing we're going to look at and we'll be a little bit brief about it. Um, But I would title this section, The Good News is Really, Really Good News, Even for Older Brothers. And we're going to look in 2 Corinthians here to another another passage of Paul. Uh, So we're going to look at this. Uh, This is verse 7 down through verse 10. And Paul has just uh, kind of had one of those crazy moments. He's kind of at the tail end of a crazy moment because the Corinthians are kind of like, who's that Paul guy? Why should we listen to him anyway? He's not really that cool. And Paul's like, okay, 
let's be real here. Let me tell you what I've suffered for the cause of the gospel. And he talks about all the things that have been done to him, prison and beatings and all this stuff. And he says, here's some of the things that have happened through me, and here's some of the things that I've seen. And he's just described being caught up into heaven and actually being able to see what's coming. And at the end of all this, to kind of say like, if I was going to boast, like here, let me go on. Like, let me tell you one more thing about why you should listen to me, Paul. Interesting. I wouldn't normally talk about myself like that. Paul's talking about himself like this. And then he comes to this in verse 7. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Really, really interesting. Why did, could God have taken away the thorn in Paul's flesh? Totally able. He could have snapped his fingers. Um, I don't know if God snaps his fingers, but he could have probably done less than snap his fingers and taken that thorn away from Paul's flesh, which Paul calls a messenger of Satan. Doesn't sound very fun, um, but I can kind of relate to maybe what that might feel like. I think there's some areas in my life where I kind of feel like, wow, I feel like I have this messenger of Satan telling me things about myself that are not true. Um, sometimes telling me things about myself that are part true. J.D., look at, your, look at your wickedness. Look at the weakness in you. Why can't you even? But why does God refuse to take it away? It's right there. First sentence. Oh, I love this passage. I've read this passage like uh, hundreds of times. We actually use it in our work. Training, uh, training people who are going overseas for the sake of the gospel. And I use this verse all the time, and it never struck me until recently. Somebody pointed it out. He said, why doesn't, why doesn't God take away the thorn? To keep Paul from becoming conceited. Paul's done all these things for the Lord. He's seen these great things. And God says, I'm going to leave that one. Why? To keep you from becoming conceited. There's that sin that's in Christianity that is not in any of the other religions. And God says, whatever you have, I do not want you to have that one. And so I'm going to leave you, I'm going to bless you by not removing this from your life so that you will not become conceited and that you will come to me. We can actually be thankful for our weaknesses because they point us to Christ. If I was free of sin, ooh, I'd still have that one. And I would be a pretty nasty person to be around, I'll bet. But because there's things in my life that God has not taken away from me, and they don't have to be sins, but they could be physical things, emotional things, spiritual things, that God refuses to take out of my life, that I'm like, God, please, I would so much rather live my life without this. And God turns around to us and He says, you know what? No. 
Because I want you, every time you're in this part of your world, I want you to remember how much you need me. And I want you to turn to me and come to my open arms. It's a really beautiful God that we have. The older son in the story, standing out in the field with his arms crossed, I will not come in. I've done everything you asked and you never is suffering from the sin of conceit, pride. And it's an opportunity for that older son to recognize, oh, Father, I'm not that different from your other boy after all. I need you. And I want to come to the party. Isn't it great news that someday all that stuff, God really is going to take it away? That all that stuff that reminds us that we need to run to Him is going to be taken away and we'll just see Him as He is and be drawn to Him by His pure beauty. I, I'm, I'm really rejoicing for that. Uh, guys, we're, we're going to just finish up here. We're going to come back around to a couple of things. Uh, in Romans 7, the passage we just looked at before, Paul wrote about himself in two ways. He described himself with two eyes. You remember that little paper that I had you write on earlier? Do you have that around? Um, if you look at that paper, I actually just write one or two words, and you probably wrote something on one side of the eye or the other. So if you wrote something down like, he just loves me, or when God thinks of me, he is filled with fondness and delight, that is totally true. And what I want you to do is on your paper, I also want you to write the other I. Something about, some truth about you. related. I'm not going to ask you to share this with anybody, okay? So we're not going to turn to our neighbor about this one. So you can be straight. But write down, how would you describe that sinful, sinful nature, um, wretched man that I am? How would you, what are the words that you would put around that? And then what I want you to do is if you were somebody who wrote down, wow, when God thinks about me, he... Does he really think about me? Or he thinks about me as a wretch? Or could I possibly be good enough? What I want you to do is recognize that you're talking about that sinful nature part of you and I want you to write down the other I part, the child of God part. And I want you to fill in the other side of that. Would you do that for me? So that you have two things on your paper, one of which describes, as Paul wrote, the evil, wretched me. And then this is the child of God that he delights in, that he welcomes into the banquet meet. Would you do that? Um, give you just a second to do that. And then we're going to wrap it up. All right, so here's what I'd like you to do while you got your pen and that paper right there. Under the side that is that wretched flesh side, what I want you to do is write under that, my flesh. And remember that that is the thing that God allows to keep you from conceit and to drive you to Him. It's actually even a gift. And then under the other side, what I want you to do is I want you to write down my identity the child of God part, my identity. Or you could write how God sees me as his child, as his beloved, with fondness, with delight, with joy. 
And it's because it's really true. That is how he sees you. And you can look all through the scriptures and find the truth of that. I want to I show you something that, that we've done in our family to help us remember this, uh, this teaching. And uh, so this is my keys. And on my keys, I have this little thing. It's just stuck on there. Um, you can't probably see, but it's a compass. It's not a real compass. It's just like a statue of a compass kind of thing. Sculpture of a compass. I don't, I don't know. Um, so it doesn't work in an earthly sense, but it's not here for an earthly sense. Um, I actually walked into a place one day and I was thinking about this idea and how can we think about this as a family, the six of us. And there were six of these laying on a table that said, take for free. And I was like, I think God's trying to tell me something. And so we took these home, and a couple of weeks later, we sat down and talked about this idea with our kids. And we came up with a, with a compass statement for our family so that we can remember direction and who we are. And our compass statement is, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I am a deeply loved child of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Pretty simple. And the other day I had my keys in my hands and I was fiddling with them like I often do. And my daughter saw it and she was like, Daddy, look, you have to say it. And we say it together every time we see it. And uh, the kids have theirs in different places. And when we see it, we remember, I'm a deeply loved child of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the thing that allows me when I'm feeding the pig slop in a famine-filled land that I can run back to my father. It's the thing that reminds me when I'm standing out in the field with my arms crossed, you never, that I, I loved your story this morning, that I can uncross my arms and run into the house of my Father who loves me, that I can join in the feast, that He's not standing there at the door with His arms crossed to remind me of my sinful nature. That's our compass. Today you might feel like the younger brother, wondering if God could possibly still love you if he'd be willing to take you back after all that you've really done. I applaud you for telling the truth about the wickedness of your life and want to remind you that your father waits with open arms, looking out from the rooftop for his children to return and longs to run and wrap his arms around you. If you find yourself today a little bit more like the older brother, standing in the field with your arms crossed, feeling prideful and conceited and maybe just a little bit justified, that your father still comes to you and beckons you into his house with open arms to join it in the feast, to celebrate his goodness and his grace, and to be with him. That is good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we cannot even fathom, frankly, the greatness of your love for us, how very much you love us. Thank you for those things in our lives that keep pulling us back to you. They keep reminding us how much we need you. Help us to see them that way, Lord, and to run to you quickly when those things rear their heads in our lives. Father, I, I pray for those that we know or those even in the room who are far off, struggling with the sin and brokenness in their lives and wondering if you might love them. God, help us to show those people your love. Help us to show them a God and welcome them to a God who runs with open arms to welcome his children that they don't have to find their own cloak and own sandals and own ring, that they can run to the Father and be given all of it. Uh, we look forward to that party one day in heaven, Lord, where you finally take away all those broken things that drive us to you and we'll get to um, just dwell in the, in the pure joy of your presence and goodness and celebrate all that you've done in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.